Okay, it is uh, Friday, May 29th, 2020, and this is the Luke Thomas live chat, episode 35. I am, of course, Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. All right, so you put in your questions yesterday on a thread that I put up on the community tab here on this uh, YouTube channel, and I'm going to get to them now. So without further ado, let's get this party started, shall we? All right, here we are. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. A uh, couple of housekeeping notes, of course. Give the video a thumbs up. Subscribe to the channel. Hit that notification bell. We got a lot of stuff coming. I try to upload daily when I can. Uh, but um, I'm not sure if I'm going to do a post-fight show tomorrow because it is for a fight night and the card is not awesome. The main event is spectacular. <clears throat> There's a couple of other gems on it. For sure, I'll go live for uh, UFC 250. If you guys want to see it, you can let me know. Of course... All the information for all the stuff that I do is in the description box below, whether it's my digital Showtime program, Morning Combat, my radio show on SiriusXM, and everything else in between, including a free podcast that comes with it. If you're not new here, that will be news to you. If you are commonly watching one of these live chats, you've seen this a million times. I know. I try to keep them as minimal as I can, but you know, being conscientious of new viewers at the same time. Okay. So, as I mentioned, you are certainly under no obligation to donate. If you do, I will get to your questions about an hour in. So, what is it, 11.05? So, I'll get to it about 12.05. Um, but all the free ones, let's get to those first if we can. All right. Pulling those up here. And thanks to everyone who participated here in this uh, crazy time that we're living through, huh? Freaking batshit. All right. Let's get to this now. Please pour a favor. And by the way, I'm sorry about all the moving around of the time slots. Normally, I was doing this at noon, and then my radio show got moved because of the pandemic. Not permanently, just temporarily, to one. I don't know how long that's going to last. That could stop on Monday. And then I'm doing this uh, sort of like remote TV show for Showtime Extreme with Brian Campbell. And then that seems to be filming every Friday now at four all of a sudden. So it's like I have to move everything around. So for those who've been sticking with me and accommodating all of the changes... Thank you very much. I know it's a pain in the ass. I apologize, but I really appreciate it just the same. Okay. Let's kick this off, shall we? Let me put this over here so I can see this. Okay. Uh, if Tyron finishes Gilbert in spectacular fashion, right? let's assume that he does, how do you see a matchup, a rematch, excuse me, between him and Usman going? Also, how would Masvidal match up against Woodley? Well, here's the thing about Tyron. If he finishes Gilbert spectacularly, that would not surprise me, and it should not surprise you. Not merely because he's really good, right? Or at least he should, obviously he's one of the, the great welterweight champs uh, ever in UFC history. One of the greats. Let's be clear about that. Not the greatest. I think he's probably third all time. But nevertheless, obviously a very talented welterweight, right? At a bare minimum. If he finishes Gilbert, there's a couple of scenarios to me where that would be, if he does that, where they'd be more likely than the other. So the first of them would be, if you go back and look at what Gilbert does really well, he is really good at that low calf kick, right? And that seems to be a bit of a range finder, set up other strikes kind of thing as he slowly inches in, because he does like to throw hands. He's not a predominant kicker. He's a capable kicker, to be clear, but he's not a predominant kicker. He likes to throw hands. So it's a bit of a range finder, set things up for him. Uh, a couple times he's gotten into trouble by being overly aggressive. Um, the most... Noteworthy of those would be against Dan Hooker, 
who split his timing with a right hand as Gilbert was coming in. You know, Woodley's got devastating power and really good timing on that pull counter that he does that he hit, for example, Darren Till with. To me, that close space in the cage, remember it's not 30 feet in diameter, it's 25. And so as a consequence, there's two scenarios here. One is you know it's going to be a Tyron tends to trend toward the fence anyway, right? I think that'll be a lot easier to get him back there, either by virtue of his own movement or, you know, Gilbert does like to pressure forward to a degree. The only thing that sort of stands out is like, to what extent is Gilbert going to use that to his advantage or to what extent might he have some success and then come rushing in and get popped? That that to me is an interesting question. So we'll, we'll have to see, but let's assume he does get popped by that right hand. That wouldn't tell me much about a rematch with Usman, to be honest with you. It, it, it might tell you that it might reinforce the idea that Woodley's claims that he was not on his game against Usman resonate with you and that you believe that that was just an off night. But in terms of how they fought the first time, I, I don't know that it would be all that significant. Remember what Usman was able to do, not really pressure Woodley backwards, but he almost did it without cage cutting. He did it at this sort of like odd angle where he was just outside the power hand, almost almost following Woodley. So he could um, he could avoid the big right while still pressuring uh, pressuring him uh, backwards into the cage, and that was ended up being really really a bit of a problem for Woodley against Usman because then he used the cage for significant wrestling success. That wasn't the case with some other fighters that Woodley has faced. So it, it wouldn't necessarily tell me a whole lot other than you know if he just looks really great and dominant and blah blah blah. You think okay, you know he's still got more in the tank. In terms of how would uh, Masvidal match up with Woodley, it's sort of a more interesting one, right? Because they're boys. It's not one we've given a lot of thought to. My hunch is that, again, the longer it goes, that's going to favor Masvidal. Uh, in the early going, I would favor Woodley. I think he might get tuned up a little bit with some of the more, the, the wider array of kickboxing and boxing that Masvidal has. Um, but at the same time, I think Woodley would probably wrestle more. And even if he didn't have success in the sense of, you you know, get Masvidal down, lay him flat on both shoulder blades, he may not get that. But just that he would be in control positions for long stretches of the fight, I think is true. But if it went past the third, at that point, you'd have to say, well, Masvidal might be able to turn it on here. So Masvidal e easily uh, in contending for the best boxer inside MMA, certainly in UFC, and one of the better kickboxers too. Not who came from kickboxing, but sort of developed it inside MMA. Masvidal's very, very talented in that regard. Um, why don't more fighters throw leg kicks, this person asks, like Henry to Dom or Alex to Max? Why did Aldo stop doing that? I don't think that leg kicks are in short supply, to be candid with you. I don't know that they've, I'd have to ask Fightmetric if they've gone down. I, I don't know, but in the case of Aldo, it's sort of been an interesting one, right? He's really gotten away from it. He has become much more of like a, you know, I don't want to say pocket boxer, although that's a little bit true. Um, yeah, he likes to find everyone at the end of his punches. Uh, it's sort of the way I would look at that. Um, I Why has he stopped? Some have surmised he's had injuries, maybe hip or knee injuries that have sort of gotten in the way of it. Because um, he's always had people like, oh, we don't want to get taken down. But Aldo's always had really good takedown defense, so I doubt that that's the the most explanatory reason. Um, 
But in terms of why don't more fighters throw leg kicks, that, that to me is a little bit... You mean like in situations where it was obvious that they should have? Some are just not very good at it. Some don't like it. Uh, some haven't set up their offense that way. You know, there's just sort of a lot of reasons why. Aldo specifically, uh, I'm not entirely certain. All right, thoughts on the Nate versus Jorge rematch. Uh, out of all the potential opponents for Jorge, I'm not really interested in the Nate fight. Also, do you agree that calling out Nate rather than fighting Usman for the belt looks bad for Masvidal? No, I don't think that at all. So let's go over this for a second. Thoughts on a Nate versus Jorge rematch. You so know, my thought is that like I, I wish the fight. I mean, I understand why it got stopped. I'm not here to relitigate the doctor intervening. Suffice to say, though, it would have been nice if it had finished because we wouldn't have to revisit this in all likelihood. You know, that was one-way traffic, man. That was a one-sided fight. That was not. That was not especially competitive, even by Diaz can come back standards. He was losing uh, all three rounds. He had moments in those rounds where he looked pretty good, um, but you know, Jorge was in total command. So, why is Jorge calling him out? I mean, to me, it all makes perfect sense, guys. Understand something, and I know Kamaru got some flack for calling out. Connor, and I mentioned this on Morning Combat yesterday, but it, it bears a little bit of repeating. Kamaru, and this leads to Jorge, is only doing the things that the incentive structure in front of him has called upon him to do. Two things. One, when fighters are contenders working their way up, they're very commonly you know, interested in, in doing the UFC's bidding, and, oh, you need me to fill in on short notice, or take this fight in this faraway reach, or whatever. And then by the time they get the title, they want to exercise a greater degree of, um, you know, they want to leverage whatever benefit and status the belt ostensibly confers, okay? Whether they do that successfully or not is a separate matter, but that's what they want to do. So that's what you see there a little bit, number one. And then number two, you're, dude, they'll just, they'll literally skip everyone in the queue to give people who are not even ranked title shots. We, we, this is a literal fact. So if you're Kamaru and apparently the negotiations with Jorge had fallen through because because Kamaru wants more money, whatever that's supposed to mean, um, and now you want to call out Conor McGregor, he's ranked 14th in that division. I mean, what do you have to lose, right? First of all, you would favor Kamaru heavily to win that contest. Secondly, they, like, they're known for skipping the queue. Now, I don't think there's much of an appetite for Kamaru versus Conor, but... Again, it's not about that per se. It's about what incentive structures have we built into the championship that fighters are going to respond to, and this is it. Jorge is sort of doing a similar kind of thing. Well, I made a bunch of money fighting Nate Diaz. For some reason, the fight with Kamara was, for now, falling through. Who's an available fight that can make me a lot of money? They want to be, if not B-sides, they want a credible and um, popular opponent. If you look at who else is out there and they don't believe that Colby is that guy, which isn't to say that they would never fight him, but they don't currently believe that. Dude, Jorge is trying to cash in on this opportunity that he has. He has finally elevated himself out of the trenches of the two most difficult weight classes, arguably, certainly in the, in the time in which he was competing in them, uh, into, into star status, you know, far beyond uh, hardcore MMA fandom, and he wants to make money. These are the incentive structures. If they got just as much money or more money, to fight Colby, for example, they would probably be going in that direction, but they're not. They're going according to what the incentive structures are 
based on the the current situation. That's it. Uh, any thoughts on what's been going on in Minnesota and other cases of police brutality misconduct towards black people that have happened over the last week? Well, uh, not just the last week. Um, yeah, it is certainly not fun to look at what is happening in Minnesota. And it's been interesting to watch the MMA community, which I would say, at least in terms of its online uh, tenor, is usually deferential towards authority. Believe it or not, they'll say that that's not true, but I think that it is. Certainly police authority and military authority, um, which is weird, but it's true. In any event, uh, I would say, I mean, I don't know. I mean, th this one feels very straightforward, right? I mean, you can have uh, an opinion about the looting. I, I, don't, I don't think that the, you know, the, um, the violent destruction of property that is not yours is never a thing you could condone nor would I sit here and pretend that you could. But, you know, if you're talking about generation over generation over generation of historically um, mistreated communities in a number of different capacities, and we mentioned this sort of in a more general way last week in a different capacity, which is um, if you don't give people an outlet to address legitimate grievances in a system that they can trust, they're going to lash out. It's just what you're going to get. This is an inevitability. Frankly, I'm surprised we don't see it more often, to be honest with you. Again, that doesn't mean, oh, I think the burning of a McDonald's or somebody's private, you know, small business is a good idea. It's, 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 a, you know, it's in every way something you would want to prevent. Um, but if you don't take these other steps in the course of peacetime to address legitimate grievances, whatever they may be, police brutality or... Uh, economic disenfranchisement, or whatever you perceive them uh, beyond that to be, this is what you're going to get. You can't be surprised. I mean, you just can't. Is anyone really surprised that they're doing this? Right? I mean, who, who could be like, wow, I can't believe they're so angry. It's just, you know, one minor incident that has happened one time. Right? I mean, these are things that have happened, uh, you know, the, the advent and the ubiquity of cell phone camera use has in many ways been... I think sort of changed society in innumer innumerable ways, but one of them has been that the documentation of um, uh, bad actors in authority has become much more visible. And like some of the claims that people in these communities have made about these authority figures, you know, certainly I grew up not skeptical of the claims, but a little bit of a hard time believing some of them. And uh, it appears <laughs> all of that skepticism was not was not well placed. People are going to lash the fuck out, man. That's what they're going to do. You know, and I'm, and I, again, I'm frankly surprised it doesn't happen more often in this country. Obviously, I hope that, you know, everyone makes it through as safely as possible. And, and for any property that's destroyed, I hope that it, um, it's insured or that the people can make a comeback. I mean, it's a hard time to have both a pandemic and an economic shutdown and then a riot on top. I mean, that's, that's gotta be devastating for that community. Right. Um, but you know, what was it, was it Martin Luther King? Uh, the, the, a riot is the, uh, is the language of the unheard. Right. All right. How much should a finishing rate weigh in on a fighter's greatness? Good question. 
I tend to go back and forth between Silva and GSP on who I personally think is the greatest of all time. No problem with that. When comparing the two, GSP was the master tactician who could dominate uh, at all aspects of the game to the point where it was a big deal if a fighter was able to take a round away from GSP. But the big critique of his era was that he was very risk-averse towards the end of his welterweight run. All true. Silva was the dynamic finisher who could knock out the strikers and submit the grapplers and didn't go past the second round until deep into his championship run, but whose willingness to put himself in danger for the finish ended up costing him uh, against Weidman. Right, so what does it matter? Uh, there, there's no universal consensus on this. I'm going to tell you for me what I consider to be the most important considerations, but it'll get complicated in the following way. So for me, it is um, how long did you win? Right. What is the length of the win streak? What is the quality of competition? That is not merely identifying, um, you know, big names in that era, but were there championship runs? Were there title defenses? Were there number one contenders you were constantly fighting? So, like, we can measure that by virtue of the other accomplishments of the contenders you were facing. Either they had titles and you took it from them, or you held the title and they were the number one contender. Right. So that's a sort of a proxy for assuming and assessing quality of opposition. So the, those to me are the most important considerations, right? Who did you fight, did you win, and how long were you able to do that? That's for me the thing that matters the most because I think in totality, that's the most difficult thing to do. However, here's where it gets a little complicated. It doesn't universally go like that. And what I mean by that is, so you would also wanna say, okay, well, what if you got two people who have basically similar win streaks in similar weight classes you can't standardize experience but they look pretty close in resume and one person has a lot of decisions and one person has a lot of finishes well at that point you have to then begin to weigh to what extent how you finish them matters now here's where it gets even a little more complicated what if you can make the argument that the person who got a bunch of decisions fought in a i won't say significantly but tougher weight class than the person who got a lot of finishes because I think it's actually what happened between St. Pierre and Silva. Silva had some wins and some finishes against A-class opponents. Make no mistake about it. But I also don't think fight over fight, he was up against the same kind of challenges that St. Pierre was. That's just my opinion. I can't prove that to you, but I sort of believe that to be the case. So now you're in a situation where you have... It's one thing if you have relatively similar accomplishments in similar kind of challenges. But the problem with the GOAT conversation is you can't standardize the experience. You can't standardize the challenge that they all had to face. It was all very different. And the problem that you run into with Silva is that he has these finishes, and in general, that should count more. But I think he got them against fighters who, relatively speaking, were not as challenging as the ones that St. Pierre had to. So you're like, well, maybe St. Pierre got those because, yes, he was a little bit risk-averse, but maybe he was risk-averse because he knew if you want to maintain this belt in this weight class, you have to fight a certain way versus Silva, who may have not been encumbered by that particular consideration. So that's where it gets a little bit dicey for me. And that's why the, the comparison between Silva and St. Pierre, for me, it's St. Pierre. If you are asking me between those two, but I can't prove that to you. I really can't. Um, it's, it's all really a function of your subjective assessment here. So I would not rank finishes, over that broader consideration that I made. But when you're trying to look at the individual unique paths these greats took to become greats, there's so many other factors that are that differentiate the, the paths that 
you know, you're beginning to say, well, it definitely should count for S Silva that he got all those finishes. Should we really count it against St. Pierre that he beat like two, arguably three generations of welterweights? That's a tough one for me. Um, you'll have to weigh it yourself. Th this is why the GOAT debate is sort of kind of fun but difficult because we're doing it in – they didn't pass the same obstacle course. They didn't all have to take the same test. They took very different tests, and they shined in different ways across it. The only common denominator is among your Johnsons and your Jones and your Silvas and your St. Pierre's, the common denominator is among those four, there was very little error along the way. That's sort of the one commonality here. Uh, what does John Jones need to do to become the unquestioned GOAT? He obviously can't change personal mistakes and PED accusations, but he has some gas left in the tank. What fight should he prioritize over the next two to three years? This is a very complicated question because I don't know what you tell somebody who is adamantly convinced that the uh, PED uh, mishaps he's had, whatever you want to call them, run-ins, problems, caught red-handed, however you want to describe it, there's just going to be a segment of the population that's going to use that as a disqualifying feature of his accomplishments. I tend to think if you can do things across multiple weight classes – that is so dynamic, a lot of people will uh, eventually just the weight of those accomplishments drowns out everything else. That seems to be a, a real thing that you can lean on. Um, so I would say, you know, okay, so let's assume we, gotta, we have to convince. Some of you might be convinced. Some of you might be on the fence. Some of you might be like, you know, fuck this guy and never in a million years. How do we convince that latter group and then that middle group, right? What do we do to convince them? So you're living in a post-USADA era, or in a USADA era, I should say, excuse me. That by itself should say whatever accomplishments you amass here, they don't undo whatever skepticism you have before it, but maybe if you can do equally spectacular things in this era as you did in that one, or, or something approximating that, that would assuage, excuse me, that would that would reduce some of the doubt. So I would say if he goes up to heavyweight, right, as a, and this seems like an obvious call at this point, but if he goes up to heavyweight and he just demolishes Francis, you know, that would be a big deal. If he goes up there and beats Stipe, that would be a big deal, right, because he would go up a weight class, take on maybe the heaviest puncher the sport's ever seen, beat him, and then beat the consensus, if let's say Stipe beats DC for a second time, and then you beat that guy, you know, at that point, you are doing something so spectacular in an era where there is supposed to be better supervision of drug use. I think that's debatable, but let's assume that it's true. Will that convince people who are otherwise skeptical? I mean, even then you'd have to ask them. I don't, I, how do you convince people who are either on the fence or really opposed <coughs> to, to the idea that, you know, John really benefited from that kind of a thing? I don't know because I'm not one of those people. So that's a little hard for me to understand exactly what the holdup is. I think some of them, the problem that John faces maybe to some of these, and I'm, I think I'm going to guess here a little bit, so I could be wrong. But for some of them, it's a matter of not merely like, well, even if you do things in an era where there is supposed to be better supervision of drug use, you know, it's a principle, right? It's the principle of the thing, right? How much did you benefit from training all those years? Some might say. But when you were using or whatever the argument might be, they might think that it's just once you cross that line, 
there's no going back. I don't know. I get the feeling that's the case, but I also tend to think that if you can get people who are already inclined to believe he's, you know, extraordinarily talented, and I've said this before, you know, I don't know what he has or hasn't done. You can make up your own mind. I think that in either scenario, there's plenty of evidence to conclude, and even his greatest rivals will tell you this, that his fight IQ is off the charts. I think that's absolutely true, and that's, uh, you know, observable from minute one to minute whatever. Um, uh, but I think if he actually went up and won another title by beating really noteworthy opponents, I mean, that's what got him like, to where he was, right? He went through a stage where he was beating former greats in the division, the Shoguns, the Machidas, the Rampages, the Rashads, the, you know, who, like, go back and obviously, you can just, you know, everybody. He was just mowing through them. You know, I don't think he has to go through that same number again. I don't think he has to go through and like, beat like 10 heavyweights. I don't think that's quite true, but... Um, going up and beating some big names it does wonders for your career Mike Perry seems to continue to get in his own way spout deplorable slurs in an unchecked manner and frankly display concerning decisions like making his significant other his sole corner person yeah that was um, I don't know what that is do you think he will ever be able to put everything together and stop being his own worst enemy to become more than an exciting but lower to mid-tier fighter? Well, yeah, I mean, the language he uses is uh, not awesome. But as we mentioned, I've said this a million times, like the only check on that kind of thing is just media. And then it becomes, if the media does it enough, it just becomes media hectoring because UFC just lets it rock. The sponsors let it rock. The teammates let it rock. You know, fans some get upset some let it rock it's mixed but there's no real heavy force to put a lid on that kind of a thing so it just is going to exist so that's where we are on it sadly um i've often thought that he was very talented you know and i think that there's a lot of potential and i've actually uh, not hung out but i've interacted with mike a couple of times in person sweet guy you know i really find his comments deplorable that he made more recently in that interview with mike bond but i don't you know you just sort of get the, he's, Mike's an interesting guy. He's an interesting guy. He is, uh, when I've interacted with him in person and he is, you know, just hanging out, he's, dude, he's a sweetheart. Like, it will sound kind of funny to me to say that, but it's really sort of true. I don't mean that to excuse the comments, but just sort of giving you a sense of things and he's funny you know, and he's a bit on the he's a bit on the goofball side too, which is kind of and I, which I say positively. Um, you know, he's 28 years old. Here's the thing for me with Mike: I think Mike is very, very talented naturally. He's certainly a good athlete, right? Especially very heavy-handed and unafraid of combat, which I think is also very important. But and I don't know why he is currently in the predicament that he is about not wanting coaches. I thought when he went to Jackson's, I was like, okay, man, here we go. We're gonna. He's going to finally, you know, see what the limit is of his abilities or get pretty close to it, you know, by really maximizing potential. Um, there's still time. At 28, there's still time, even with some of these errors he might be making. But you got to build on your successes at this stage. You got to stack wins, man. I don't mean just W's in the cage. I mean, you got to stack wins on the daily. You got to get in that gym and you're going to have good days and bad days in the gym. But you need those good and those bad days to know you're getting better. You got to advance through the belt system in jiu-jitsu. You got to really work on your, you know, your wrestling. You got to get, you got to start crossing the T's and dotting the I's at this stage so that by the time you are 30, 
you have put together, you've taken all that labor, you've put it to good use in the octagon. You might have some losses along the way. It's MMA, it's inevitable. But you've put yourself in you know, headliner status. You've got some rivals. You've, you've, you've climbed the ranks a little bit. You can maximize um, opportunities for wealth generation. You're right. so, so this is the time, right, when it's not exactly that winter is coming at 30, but you know, this is the time to start stacking away the acorns for um, the storm that's coming, right? It's, sort of, it's, it's the opposite kind of analogy because it should be a little bit more. But I just mean you have to put in the work now so that when um, – when it's time to make full use of it, uh, you're at the appropriate age. It's not too late. So what I mean to say is if you waited until 30 to stop making the, you know, or assuming that, again, I don't know what the situation is with his corners, but let's assume he's not training at a team and maximizing his, you know, uh, training environment. Um, by the time you're 30, you still have time to repair that, but then you would be out a year and a half, two years, right? And that, that's a critical, at 28 to 30, is when you could still recover from injury quicker. Um, you're still at the you know, peak of your athletic powers. Like, there's just a lot you can do at that time. I mean, to be 28 again, I would, I would kill a man. <laughs> in terms of what it would bring back, um, in terms of what it would bring, let me see this. Hang on just a second. There we go, a little bit better. In terms of what it would bring back, and what you can do at that age versus 35, it's a lot harder, you know? So you gotta start stacking W's daily at 28, you know? And those aren't, those aren't W's that are always visible. Those aren't W's where you can go back and you're like, man, today I, today I won. It's not exactly that. It's that you're going through this process where you have this moment where you, you've made some mistakes, you've had some W's in the cage, you are still at the peak of your athletic powers, and you can really begin to have some self-awareness about development that can guide that process much more smoothly than at 22, 23. And you gotta do it right then. So then you can cash in on it when you're at the peak of your earning powers as a fighter, which is, you know, uh, 30 to mid early 30s. Um, you know, I hope sooner rather than later he can get to a position to do that and obviously, uh, you know, stop saying the reprehensible shit. Taking into consideration the difference in weight and stature, how similar slash different is the footwork and head movement of prime Dominic Cruz and Adesanya? Fucking super significant. They're not very similar. They both rely on evasiveness and setting up counters, while Cruz's seems to be more dynamic. Well, Cruz's <clears throat> involves much more movement, um, but they're not similar at all. Cruz is trying to... Uh, Cruz is doing a lot of things differently. Adesanya is um, using sleight of hand, but he's using sleight of hand in a much more, um, in a less labor-intensive kind of way. He's not constantly in motion, shuffling his feet. He's not constantly just jumping to set an angle. He's not leaning so far, typically. I mean, in the Whitaker fight notwithstanding, but when he's slipping a punch, he's not leaning so far over the outside knee where he has stepped like it's still much more controlled and slick and efficient whereas what dominic does appears to be much more about um chucking the book at you and then overall the volume of it kind of sticks where you know you're just constantly shuffling feet and they're constantly in motion he's backing up and he's going this way and he's dipping and where the head goes the body follows so then he switches and swings out at an angle and I mean he's obvious like not obvious in the sense that uh, you know it's coming but you know these m huge motions that he's taking 
Adesanya is not like that at all. Adesanya is about trickery and fainting, and um, he'll do a lot. Well, he'll just give you a target, then pull it away. He does a lot of that, and Dominic does that too, but with the answers being much, much different. And he doesn't do uh, Adesanya doesn't do a lot of darting. Uh, Adesanya is much more again. He's careful about it, and he's clever about range management and what he, what your weapon selection. But he's much more in front of you. Uh, Cruz is very much about, like, I'm barely in front of you if I don't have to be. And if you corner him, he's much more in front of you, which was part of the genius of what Henry was able to do by backing him across the two back lines, getting him against the fence. He becomes a much more stationary target, obviously. But, no, they're not very similar at all. They're not similar in their foot pattern. They're not similar in their in their angle adoption. They're, you know, Adesanya is very linear. Uh, he, he'll get angular with it, but it's very almost almost geometric um where whereas Cruz is you know it's just this constant you know it, it just it reminds me of almost like a you know it's just a motor blade that's constantly spinning da -da 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 -da, and it's going this way and it's going this way and it's going this way and you know it, that's why his feet I think have taken such a beating over the years right it's because it's a lot of you it, the, the theory I think behind what he's trying to do is let me show you so many different looks and so many fakes with part of those looks, and we'll do it with big movements and big angle changes that you'll have a hard time picking up on what's happening. That's sort of that's sort of what's happening here. Uh, whereas Adesanya is much more like cut the fat away. I'm just going to use very precise movements to make you look a, a certain way or think something is coming, and then do the opposite. So, in the sense that they like to take angles, yes, in a general way. In the sense that they really rely on misdirection, yes, that's true. But that's very broad. The specific tactics of what they do is wildly different. Uh, hey, Luke, if you wanted your kid to develop the most effective kicks, what discipline would you put them through? Well, not an expert on kicking. I suppose you could make the argument that if you really wanted the most effective kicks, well, the question is most effective for what? Most effective in the sense that self-defense... Most effective for, uh, you know, some kind of sport fighting. Sport fighting by what rule set? If you're asking, like, what martial art has the widest array and focus on kicking, it's probably Taekwondo. But even that can be debatable uh, depending on the person's needs and rule set. Like, whenever you say most effective, people think that there's this... People think that like, there's this standard, like, there's most effective and that the definition is almost axiomatic. Like you just know what most effective means. Oh, it means most effective. Oh, okay. What does most effective mean? Uh, for the widest array of different possibilities? Okay, I mean, in that sense, do you really need anything more than what Muay Thai could give you? Uh, if you're asking most effective in the sense of full command of the kicking universe, probably Taekwondo. If you're asking for, uh, you know, a good mix of... Um, you know, uh, wide array, but also, um, you know, you want it to be a little bit more, you know, brutal for purposes of hurting someone. Kyokushin could be a good choice. I mean, there's lots of things you have to, but most effective doesn't mean anything unless you tell me what most effective is. It's the same thing with the greatness debate. Oh, you know, um, who's the greatest? Okay, well, let's define greatness first, and then we can make a list. But until I know precisely what greatness means, I have no idea how to answer that question. Let me do this a little bit. There we go. 
you know so that's why people say what martial art is most effective dot 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 for self-defense okay well that's different well now we can have a conversation about that right um probably jujitsu but there's a debate to be had about that in certain ways so right so you say most effective most effective for what Thoughts on Colby leaving ATT? Uh, do you think he will join another gym? Isn't he training at MMA Masters? Isn't that the idea? Down in Miami? Uh, I'll build his own team. How do you think that will affect his future in fighting? Boy, that is really, to me, the very... Um, that's the central question here, folks. That is the central question here. Uh, Colby is, and let's call it what it is, he is an elite welterweight. He is a championship caliber welterweight, in my opinion. At least he has shown himself to be. So that is what he has been. Now, pardon me if that was noisy. Okay. Leaving ATT. Frankly, this was an inevitability, right? I mean, I made this point yesterday. Uh, I forget where. If you ever notice something about the Dutch in kickboxing, teammates will fight teammates. Like, it happens all the time. And you'll talk to the Dutch about it. And they have this really, like cool nonchalant attitude about it which is like look man it's not personal it's just business you know this is this is kickboxing kickboxing is a rematch sport it's a you know who's available kind of sport obviously you want to make bigger fights right it's still you know it's still prize fighting but um you know there's not the, the dutch don't seem I, I, listen I'm, I'm 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 generalizing here but i think well let's say how about this relative to americans the dutch don't seem as hung up on the idea of fighting a teammate if necessary in a professional sport context as Americans do, like where you have people like, you know, in their primes, you know, Josh Koscheck and John Fitch were like, no, we're not fighting. Like, it's never going to happen, right? You, you just tend to see less of that on the Dutch kickboxing side. But you don't see what Colby did, which is, you know, just drive daggers into people that you're training with or under the same roof. And what's interesting about American top team is that, you know, think about their model. Like, think about a, think about AKA. You know, DC was able to compete at heavyweight when Kane was in the UFC and DC was in Strike Force. And he competed at heavyweight for a time, I think, was it the Frank Mir fight or something? But basically, the idea was, as Kane was ascending, out of deference to Kane for what he did in allowing him to come to the gym, DC went to 205, right? So you're in this gym, you're the guy at this weight class. And because of that, I will be the guy in a different weight class, right? It was a, it was it was a it was a hat tip to him. In other words, they all kind of made accommodations for each other to make the larger thing work. Kane was like, okay, I'll accept this other elite heavyweight in, and I will you know I will bring him up to speed with my abilities, and I will train him as a partner, and I will be you know a good guy from day one on the condition that in the UFC I'm the guy. I, I don't know if you made those explicit, but you know you get the idea. And then DC sort of took a back seat, not in his, the totality of his career, but as long as Kane was active in there. So. There was a balance there. Everyone made sacrifices for a greater good, and there was minimal slots that you could take if you were elite. ATT has a really different uh, model, which is like it's this warehouse almost. You know, it's elite facility, of course, but you know they've got tons of welterweights, tons of lightweights, tons of blah 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 blah. And you know, guys at ATT have fought each other before. Like the, even that is not necessarily some kind of rare occurrence. But what I mean to say is, you know. If you were doing what Colby was doing at AKA, it wouldn't last ever. It would it would immediately fall apart. Like you'd be kicked out, or the gym would fall apart, or whatever. It lasted as long as it did because ATT has this much broader open model where some people don't train together, some people have their own coaches. 
you know, they come together at times, obviously, but everyone is able to do a bit of their own, a bit of their own thing to a large degree. It's, it, it gives a lot of freedom to everyone to, 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 to customize, right? Which is, you know, neither model is better than the other. It's just the one that they chose, it, you know, even in that model, what Colby was doing was not sustainable in terms of um, welcoming yourself. You know, he he chose a path, and you can like that path or you can hate that path, where he was going to just sling arrows at anyone potentially in his way. And he did. And I think we've made this point before. A lot of people want to compare what Henry did to Colby, and I don't think that's accurate, dude. You know, uh, Colby has tied his fortunes and his identity to a degree to Trump. I don't think that's, you know, uh, certainly Jorge Masvidal is, is pro-Trump, but not in this sort of like mascotish way that Colby has. But Colby has also become something of an identifying figure for that audience. He has been on Candace Owens' show. He has been to the White House. He gets calls from the family. You know, they tweet about him. You know, they're constantly sharing information in a positive way on social media about him, right? So he has really resonated with that audience. Like there's something about what he did. I think you just have to call it that worked. But the cost is this. The cost is it was just it was just too poisonous. You couldn't. It was never going to last. So my understanding is he's been training at MMA Masters. Now I don't know like exactly what capacity. Like is he just using the gym? Is he like coming and going? You know, uh, is he? Is he planning on staying there forever? Is he going to get cornered by those guys? Is he going to rep them? That remains to be seen. But uh, Gilbert Burns was saying he's been training at MMA Masters. So that part will be interesting. And that's the other part, too. It's like, you know, Mike, he credited Mike Brown with being like a mastermind. And Mike Brown, I think we could all agree, he is a mastermind. He's a very, very smart coach. You know, and trained at a, and, and won at a you, you guys missed Mike Brown at, uh, in WEC. You missed out on some fun because Faber was just like the guy and Mike Brown was good, and you knew he was a, uh, a stiff challenge. And then he came around and just started clubbing fools, man. Go look at the punch he used to knock down Leonard Garcia. He lifted him off of his feet. I mean, when Mike Brown was a force to be reckoned with, yo, he was a force to be reckoned with. And by the time he got to the UFC, you know, he was sort of past it at that point. But Mike Brown in his prime was a, you know, he wasn't good enough to beat Aldo. Okay, you know, who was? Prime Aldo was... The, the most special of the featherweights, but Mike Brown was awesome, and him versus Faber was fun. So go check those out. Uh, okay. What are your initial thoughts on Sanhagen versus Sterling? I think I went over this last week, right? I think I did. So I think I'll skip that one. On a scale of 1 to 10, so 1 being not confident, 10 being fully confident, how confident are you that the NBA can go COVID case-free for the duration of its resumed season in Orlando? Okay, so 10 would be fully confident. Six? Seven? The key for me on this stuff is what we kind of saw out of UFC. I don't think there's a way you can go COVID-free. Like the first show, Jacare, you know, had a positive and this tournament did. The key is, do you have enough protocol in place to catch it early and then separate? And I haven't, you know, we haven't seen them implement their plan or how this is going to go. And, you know, it's a much, have you guys read the plans that like Major League Baseball has uh, suggested? And I don't mean the revenue share. I mean, just to deal with COVID. Oh my God. Yo, like 
we all knew the UFC was going to be back first because, you know, that's just Dana White's DNA. You know, they're, they're big solution finders. You know, the, the whole argument, you know. And plus, you're just dealing with a lot, a lot less people. Oh, my God. You should go read the travel plans for Major League Baseball. Like, dude, I don't know how they're going to do that. I really have no idea how they're going to do that. The, the one about everyone being at, in Disney World, that seems better, right? Because it's contained. But, you know, you got young men in their 20s with a shitload of money. Are they not want to going to go out? You know, are they going to bring in visitors? Like, how the hell do you monitor that, dude? Fuck. So, I'll say that they're going to make it a good effort. To me, the key is not about, dude, does no one ever get COVID? Someone's going to get it. It just seems inevitable. The question is, how fast do you spot it and then separate? Right? That that's really the key, and then that detail of their plan, I don't know yet. But good luck with that shit, because that is, I mean, the UFC has a massive undertaking just to do what they do, you know, to do what they're doing. The NBA, shit. I don't envy the per- the people in charge of those logistics. That is a tough job, very tough job. And then how do you do that for American football, where you've got you know, hundred people on each sideline between. Players, coaching staff, equipment managers, doctors, uh, PR, front front office staff. Jesus. Like my mug, my Eeyore mug. My wife got it for me. All right. How would you see a Connor versus Gaethje fight going down? Although Connor has never been knocked out, I can see many fighters being able to take the kind of punishment. Excuse me. I cannot see many fighters being able to take the kind of punishment Ferguson did. Yeah, but Connor's got a rock chin. All right. Connor has an awesome chin. You got to give it to him. Like, there's no denying that that is true. How would I see it going down? Well, this was interesting, right? So here was the revelation that I got. If you guys didn't see my. Um, you know what, I will go back through and I will put it on the, uh, what's the, I don't know what the timestamp is around here, around 49 minutes or so, 44 minutes or so. I'll put it up. I did a dissected on, and there's other breakdowns, you can go look at them, but I did a dissected for Morning Combat on, on Gaethje. And here's the revelation I came to. You know, everyone wants to give Trevor Whitman all the credit. Dude, you got to give Trevor Whitman all the credit in the world, but you got to give some credit to Gaethje because he has absorbed the lessons and he's a smart fighter. I, I, I've said this a million times. If you're ta- if you're not talented, you can train with the most talented people in the world, and even if you work hard, you're only going to get so good. The point about Gaethje is that yes, he's got in- he's got geniuses around him, but what you see is that he absorbed the lesson and now can spot scenarios and make immediate reads and calls. And dude, here- here's what you have to just say: Justin Gaethje is one of the best strikers in the lightweight division. Now he's not the best striker in the full sense of the array of things. I don't know that he could take what he does and go to kickboxing with it. That's not really what I mean. But look at his last four fights. He beat James Vick inside of half a round. Then he beats Edson Barboza, right? Didn't do it with any wrestling, just outstruck him. Just outstruck him. Then he beat Don Cerrone. How did he do it? He outstruck him. Then he beat Tony Ferguson. And how did he do it? He outstruck him. Now, you can make some arguments if you want. You can say Barboza left the weight class and he's sort of past it. You could say, you know, Cerrone's 36, 37 at this point. Um, you could say that, you know, Tony's boxing has always relied on a, a few conditions that 
Justin removed. Okay, you can make a lot of excuses, but what you also and I, I don't think altogether that's a bad point. Like he hasn't fought another really high end striker who uh, has like super fatal flaws about their striking. Like you could say that um, you know Cerrone has really good striking, but you know again sort of can't take damage maybe like he used to. But even then, I think it's a little bit unfair. Okay, but even if you wanted to make that argument, what you have to recognize about Gaethje is he can look at a scenario and he can understand immediately. To in the case of the Ferguson fight, certainly, I can make a read based on what you're showing me, and I can choose the weapon, and I can maintain defensive responsibility, and I can limit the effectiveness of your offense while certainly allowing mine to take place moreover I can make adaptations I can disguise what I'm doing remember he kept going and dropping his left shoulder and it looked like a lot of times he would go to the body a lot of times he would pop up and take a step with the right switch to southpaw and then bang with the right roll and then punch with the left or whatever he kept finding this disguised moment where Tony would freeze as you heard Daniel Cormier mention because he just didn't know what was coming. Like, dude, this is you're setting up camouflage, you're switching stances, you're exiting the pocket, you're not taking a lot of damage, your footwork is marvelous. That that fight took place inside the two black lines for the overwhelming majority of it, and that is due directly in part to uh, Justin Gaethje's footwork. He was constantly turning Tony, intercepting him. You know, again, you can go back and look through what I had written or check out anyone else's breakdown. Dude, that's like a he's a good striker. He's a legitimately good striker. He's not just a brawler, which is, has been his reputation. I think reputationally, we need to update things with Justin. We don't give him the credit he deserves. Now, here's the problem. Connor, to me, would represent a different kind of challenge than all those guys. If you wanted to say he's a better striker than all of them, the ones he's beaten already, you certainly may, um, at least in terms of MMA. But the other part is Connor has a rock chin. And Connor is very good about making those kinds of reads himself. And he is very, very quick with that kind of a thing early. Um, making the adjustments early, making reads early, making calls about which weapons to throw early. He can do the same kinds of things Justin can do. It feels like Justin, and I don't know this to be true, it feels like Justin was a little bit more programmatic with how he approached Tony. Like they had a series of plans and he was just able to execute the plans. Um, maybe that's true, maybe that's not. It just sort of felt that way. Whereas Connor can make adjustments, but um, is quicker about it. It's, it's a little more effortless, a little bit more improvisational jazz. I don't know how they would match up, to be quite honest with you. Um, I tend to think he'd be more competitive than you might imagine. I tend to think Gaethje would land on Connor in a way that Connor supporters would not believe to be true. And I also tend to think that Gaethje would get stiffer resistance early than he was able to get from Tony, who just kept walking into trouble. Connor, Connor is much, much, much more clever, cleverer, whatever the word is, about uh, finding the conditions under which to strike with you. It's just, you know, if that one went down to just um, who's got more heart in the end, right? Because they're both bloodied and battered and hurt. You're, you're gonna, I'm going to lean towards Gaethje in that consideration. On the other hand. If you really believe that the sophistication and the slickness of Connor is that much better than Gaethje's, and it could be, I don't know that it's not, then obviously Connor is is the way you're going to lean there. But I, if you had asked me that fight after the, if you asked me this question after the Poirier fight, I would have been like, Connor's a horrible matchup for him, and I still think Connor is in many ways a bad matchup for just about anybody on the feet at 155. 
on the feet. I, I think it's a lot more competitive now. So I'd probably lean a little bit Connor early. Um, but Gaethje's got a pretty good chin, you know, too. In terms of the individual ways in which they would clash, right? Because if you look at them, they most UFC fighters, they separate and then they clash. They separate and then they clash. They separate and then they clash. How they would clash to me uh, remains to be seen because that switch stancing stuff that he does where he starts in an orthodox stance, um, throws, leans, rolls, or weaves, whatever you want to call it, and then comes up in a different stance, he does that a lot. He did that in, I think, uh, the uh, he did that in the Barboza, Cerrone, and Ferguson fights. I suspect if Connor's paying attention at all, he would take that away from him. Um, so it remains to be seen. This is the thing about Connor: you can give him credit, and his critics will tell you you're uh, a bootlicker. You cannot give him credit, and the world, his fans will rain down upon you that you have not given sufficient credit to him. You know, I, I tend to think that Connor's probably the most gifted striker at lightweight, but I tend to think Gaethje, we, we need to reframe how we think about him a little bit. He is he is one of the best strikers at 155 pounds. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's crazy to say, certainly with his hands. Are you familiar with esports and the salaries of the players within? Not very much, but every time I see a headline, it's like, team splits $20 million purse. I'm like, fuck. It was announced recently that the new average salary for players in the game League of Legends in North American League was 410k. Jesus Christ. Granted, this is one of the biggest and most money-driven games and has that of China money, but who would figure a like 410k average salary stack up with average uh Okay, so if Francis fought what was Francis's payout? It was like 130k, right? So what was the, uh, let's see. Um, let's see. What was the purse reveal for 249? It was. Castro walked away with 12. Gaethje had 350. Tony got five. Cruz was at three. Where was it? Hang on, 249. So let's look at this. So you could say, um, here we go. Da Zone has one. All right, so Francis, 260K. So, if Francis fought twice or something, something like that, because I guess that includes his bonus, which he got. Yeah, I believe, I believe that includes his bonus. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Let's see. So, something like that. Something like that. That's pretty good. It's pretty good cash for playing video games. Oh, I was going to buy um, Mortal Kombat Aftermath so I could play with RoboCop. Obviously, what I'm about to say is like old white dude out of touch at 40. Yo, these fucking video game companies just nickel and dime you, man. 50 bucks to get MK Aftermath. It's like, oh, there's a new cinematic storyline. I don't give a shit. I just want to play with RoboCop. How, can you charge me like five bucks to play with RoboCop? I'll pay five bucks. I'll pay, I'll pay ten bucks. 
Can I pay 10 bucks to play with RoboCop? You fucking thieves. Anderson beats Connor fairly comfortably. Too big, too long, will counter him all night and could eventually submit him. Sure, I don't give a shit. Uh, hey Luke, recently there have been rumors of Mike Tyson laughably getting offers of $20 million even after his early 2000s boxing run where he currently holds a two-fight losing streak. Yeah, and he quit here in Washington, D.C. Remember that? I remember that night. I was out in, I was out in uh, Chinatown that night, which is where the venue was, and I remember seeing all the crowds, and they looked forlorn, man. They were sad. <laughs> Do you think Tyson takes life-changing brain damage in a second return? So I actually had David Feldman, the guy from BKFC, on my show, and I asked him matter-of-factly, I said, where do you get, how do you have $20 million? Like, where do you, where, not, not like even in a shitty way, like, like, dude, most promotions could not afford to have $20 million just thrown at a guy. So how do you have $20 million, right? Just in all fairness. And he was like, you know, we have a series of investors who in that, in that essential predicament would chip in. So, you know, apparently he's got rich friends or something like that, if you want to believe it. Um, do I think he takes it? I think he does something. I don't think all this is for nothing. What he does in the end, I don't know. But I said this before, man. You know, listen, guys, I don't know how you feel about it. Like, Tyson was the guy in the 80s and 90s in combat sports. I'll never forget after the rematch with Razor Ruddock. I was, my mom didn't let me watch the fight. And I remember getting up the next day as a kid and asking my mom, you know, what are the results? What are the results? And she had actually watched Sports Center that morning for me so that when I got up, she could tell me. And I remember she told me, she's like, uh, he won and broke his jaw. And I was like, you know, I was a kid. I was like the happiest kid alive because everyone idolized Mike at that time. This is long before all the trouble set in. And, uh, you know, I, I'll never forget that morning. I'll, that morning stands in my brain as like one of my most burned in memories. Like, like it was a Christmas morning for me to wake up and ask my mom the results of the Razor Ruddock rematch. And, uh, and so he just holds, you know, like I have a special place even through all of his mistakes. And I don't know, you know, he's made a number of them. Um, you know, I still have, I can't let go of the feelings I had as a kid about him as a sports icon, right? I mean, th this is the truth about you guys. Like, I don't know how old you are if you're watching this. They, no one tells you this, so I'll be, if I'm not the first to tell you this, you know, okay, but if I am the first, listen to me quite, quite cleanly. No one tells you this, but your youth is what will essentially define your life. And what I mean by that is, it's not that you can't develop tastes or interests or hobbies later in life. You can. Like, you can build off of things and go in interesting and new directions. But like the music you listen to now at 21, 25, even 30, or however old you are, that'll be what you listen to <laughs> the rest of your life in general, in, in general. Again, it won't be wildly divergent from there. It, it, now I look like, you know, the old man on the outside looking in. I, I used to be, you know, when I was a kid, uh, you were into Wu-Tang. Oh man, that was like, you know, you were cutting edge. Who are the, the idiots y'all listen to now? Like... Lil Xan or whatever other fuck faces out there still in diapers saying stupid shit uh, with the slurred words, whoever it is, Lil Uzi Vert, eventually there's going to become a generation of kids that are going to look at you and laugh at you. I'm going to say, okay, boomer, for listening to Lil Uzi Vert. It will happen. All of this has an expiration date on it. All of this being, all that I mean to say is um, there are just going to be parts of your childhood that will stick with you and will always be fond memories and will define a big part of the universe of things that you like and appreciate and do. And I have a hard time letting go of that with, with uh, Mike Tyson. I think a lot of people do suffice to say though, 
am I all that really interested in like plunking down on the couch and like seeing what happens? No, I don't give a shit. Like, dude, fighting has never been better. Combat, combat sports, dude, we're living in the absolute golden age of combat sports in virtually any iteration of it or, or type of it. You're getting, you know, not merely all the different types on a prominent stage of streaming or on your television or on your fucking phone for crying out loud. But more than that, like, dude, the best practices are out of control good. I mean, I, I, I've been doing this show for, um, for Showtime on their Extreme channel where, you know, we talked to Scott Coker and Mar Ronaldo. I'm doing it today for an episode about, you know, great strike force fights. And the, the really good ones hold up over time, you know, like the Thompson and Melendez fights, particularly that third one. That third one really stands the test of time. And that tells you, that's how you know it. I mean, you knew it was a classic when it happened, but it just really reminds you. But even then, you can go back and watch fights from 10 years ago, which I thought at the time 10 years ago was the golden age. And they don't hold up to, to modern fighting at all. And that's really true on the women's side. You know what's kind of funny? There was this debate that was online between um, Macy, I, I always mispronounce her name. She's a very good fighter. Chiasen, Chiasen, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. And then Valerie Lareda about essentially what, you know, should you be over-sexualizing your identity as a fighter? And then what kind of signal are you sending to other people about it, whether it's young women, your peers, other men, and what role does this have? And, you know, listen, that's a debate partly for only the women to sort of settle among themselves. But as a dude watching this, I can say you'd have a point about the perniciousness of that effect if it was really sort of showing, wow, women's MMA is so far behind the men's. And to be clear, it is but not as much as it used to be. In fact, it's made substantial progress. One, look at the Yoani and Jacek versus Zhang Wiley fight. I mean, that's one of the best fights I've ever seen, irrespective of weight class, irrespective of gender. It's phenomenal, right? And then you go back and you look at old women's fights. Like, I went back and I watched uh, Misha Tate versus Marlouz Kunin. I mean, it's a great fight. There's nothing really wrong with it. And, and Misha Tate, credit to her, uh, you know, one via side choke. Uh, I think in the fourth round and captured that strike force uh, uh, title. But if you look at how women fight today, dude, they have caught up in a dramatic, dramatic way. And to me, like that progress is just, if you can see this kind of fighting at the tip of your fingers, I, I get the nostalgia and the romanticism around Mike. Believe me, I do. But for what? For the, I mean, what are you getting out of it? You know, I mean, you know, a little bit of fun. Okay, I'm not here to police your fun. It's, I get it. I get it. You know, and he, and he can make a lot of money without doing something too dangerous. God bless him, dude. That's what America's about, right? But, uh, like, dude, fighting is so good. Fighting is so good. I, I, I just don't, I don't need to, I don't need to see it. It doesn't do, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. And especially if he wants to fight Holyfield, Holyfield looks terrible. Holyfield looks really bad. He, he's really, as I fuck up my hair, he's really kind of aged, you know? All right, let's go to your uh, paid questions. If we have time, I'll come back and do some other ones on the free side. Did I miss one here? Same Colby Covington question, which we can skip. Did you ever interact with Kevin? Yeah, a couple times. How do you assess his career overall? Kevin was a fucking beast, man. Force of nature and a sweet person. I mean, obviously, a ferocious competitor and, you know, hot-headed at times, like a lot of fighters are. But um, that's a real sweet dude, man. He's missed. Kevin Randleman's missed, man. 
He was a good person. Uh, and GSP, I mean. <laughs> that's, a, that's about the easiest shoe in imaginable, right? So, you know. I mean, are they going to induct Silva into the Hall of Fame the night he retires? Because that's another one of those ones that's like, what do you make about Silva going to the Hall of Fame? Motherfucker, Silva is the Hall of Fame, you know. That's what I make about it. All right, let's go to your questions, and then we'll come back. All right, if Gilbert Burns defeats T. Wood, all right, how do you like his chances with the rest of, say, Covington, Usman, Leon? Uh, okay. That one says, pray for my city, Rip Floyd, stop the violence. All right. I would say the following. It will depend how he defeats him. If he defeats him by absolutely no-selling his wrestling which I don't think is all that likely, or at least giving you... Basically, here's what he has to do to... If, if you want to have any chance against Usman or Covington, you are going to have to show a significant degree of takedown defense and not just stopping the takedown, but remember, stopping the takedown and then creating separation. You have to do both. And so let's see how he does. So it's not just a function of did you win. It's a function of how did you win. All right, this person asks, why isn't Randy Couture on more GOAT lists? Um, probably because he has a lot of losses. You know, and, he, and, and not just that, he has two losses in certain ways to, like, key rivals. You know, he had the loss to Josh Barnett. He had the second and then the third loss to uh, Chuck Liddell. That was, a, that was a real defining... I mean, that, that knocked him out of the sport for a while and made him change weight classes. You know, and then he lost to Brock, which, of course, is inevitable, but... Um, you know, he's one of those guys that had these, like, he and Penn, and see, like, to me, it's like you've got the, you know, Penn's, okay, so there's two different kinds of models. There's the Silva, St. Pierre, Jones, Johnson model. Then there's the sort of Penn, Couture, Connor model. And I'm not here to say that their resumes are all equal. Rather, they've got a couple of, Penn obviously has, you know, significant missteps. But in the case of, let's say, uh, Couture and Connor, all three really, they've got these really punctuated moments of greatness. These like punctuated moments of absolute brilliance, right? And then mixed in with inconsistency uh, here or there. Connor much less so than the other two, but um, that's sort of what, um, you know, sort of what, that's sort of the two different models are. And which one is deserving of GOAT? For me, it's the consistency over time. All right, who is the cringiest fighter on the mic, in your opinion? In my opinion, Tito. Dude is an excellent, is, was an excellent fighter, but damn, he is cringe. Yeah, it's got to be Tito. You know, when he was, like, talking about Chuck reaching for them grapes. You're like, oh, God, Tito. Jesus Christ. Uh, Tim asks, is there any hope for the future of the U.S.? Um... Not in the immediate run. There's someone trying to troll me. I will skip that question. Nice try. Is Cristiano Ronaldo at Madrid the greatest athlete you've seen on a consistent basis in your lifetime? Seven years at the top of the most popular sport. Well, first of all, all of the messy, uh, you know, ball lickers will take issue with that very characterization. He's up there. But, you know, I saw Michael Jordan in his prime, too. So... Right, and Michael Phelps. You're asking, like, which one did I enjoy who was among the greats? You know, Ronaldo's, I, I took more pleasure in, uh, in terms of what he was able to do as a striker, but um, no. Uh, Ian says, you're worth $5, but no more. I agree. 
I'm a cheap, cheap whore. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, shout out from Brisbane, Australia. Really appreciate all the content you provide. Sorry for mentioning a different program, but yourself and Tip Master Campbell on Morning Combat are also essential viewing. Yeah, I appreciate that. Where in the world is Santiago Ponzinibbio? He looked great against Magni, but hasn't fought since 2018. Would love to see him versus anyone in the top 10. That is a great question. Wasn't he calling out Dos Anjos recently? It looks like he's been trying to get back, but the actual nature of his absence, I'm not entirely certain about. Uh, what is Tony's future? Really, it's up to him. Uh, clock is ticking in terms of what he could do at this weight class at this age. So what I would say is uh, he needs a doable fight back. I would like to see the Poirier fight personally because to me it's like if you want us to show you want to show that your boxing is still a force to be reckoned with, that's a good fight to do it in because you can either use your skills to to defeat Poirier, who I consider one of the best boxers at lightweight. Or you could show the sort of well-rounded totality of your game. Like, remember, we, we went over this. He hasn't shot and scored a takedown. Well, he hasn't scored a takedown since 2015. Um, you know, it's been a while. Rocky versus Usman. Uh, Khabib versus Colby. JJ versus Stipe. These are long, stupid-ass questions. All right. So, I know it's not booked, but my dream matchup is O'Malley versus Sanhagen. Agree that if it would be maybe the most technical fight in bantamweight history, it's uh, two guys who play a bit of speed chess against each other, right? Who have game plans and stick to it, but there's a lot of improvisation, a lot of change, a lot of quick strike, a lot of finding the gaps in the armor kind of situations in the blink of an eye. Listen, Sanhagen's at the top of that division, and as it stands, O'Malley is unranked, so we'll see what happens if he beats Wineland. But I agree that O'Malley and Sandhagen, who seem to have mutual respect for each other, I had them both on my show this week. They sort of recognize, I think, a little bit of themselves in each other. Oh, Jesus Christ. Thoughts on the situation in Hong Kong? Yeah, it's bad. Uh, a mass exodus is most likely the UK and Taiwan are opening paths to citizenship. Are they really? I didn't see that. Um, I don't want to get to this right now, but yeah, China's cracking down in a sort of uber significant way um but i'd rather get to some of these other questions first i'll come back to it if we have time thanks for being understanding of what is happening in minneapolis i always appreciate your perspective yeah i just hope things can get to a more peaceful place in a readily fashion but it is you know not great what do you think mma will look like in 20 years people ask this i i would never have imagined it would look like this in 10 i couldn't possibly tell you in 20 I have zero idea about... I mean, can you imagine how much the world's going to change in 20 years? Especially the world that we're in now, which feels like the sand is shifting underneath us in terms of geopolitical power and operating paradigms and economic structures and winners and losers in the economy. I mean, it's just... Who the hell knows? I wish I, wish I could give you an answer, but it's just way too hard to tell. Uh, wish I could donate more. Really appreciate the content. Remember when your setup was so shit that the viewers brought you bought you a chair? Yes, this one. I have come a long way, my friends. I still have some work to do, but I have come a long way. Is Usman still being underestimated? You know, I don't think Usman is underestimated. I just don't think he's a fan favorite. So you don't see the fans kind of stump for him in an exciting way. 
right? But if you talk to people and they're like, okay, who, who, how would Usman do against so-and-so, against so-and-so? Very few people come out and say things like, oh, he'd have no chance. Oh, he's got some obvious liabilities. I mean, some people might pick Masvidal or whoever else to beat him, but they don't really like badmouth his ability. They just kind of badmouth his celebrity or they badmouth his, whether he's entertaining or not. But they don't really, they don't hammer him for that other stuff. On a Connor versus a beat matchup. At 155? I mean, I think Connor's power punching and some of the stuff that Cater showed he could he could live up to. Zabit has a has a hard time finishing. Connor's a guy you're gonna want to finish. Um yeah, I would not like that matchup for Zabit. Here's a weird question. Have you seen it's a question about Brian Campbell and his obsession with tip to tip stuff. I'll let you can ask BC that one. Uh, I'd have to verify this claim, but analyze companies' finances for a, uh, this person says I analyze companies' finances for a living. I reviewed Zufa's 2019 year-end financials, and fighter pay could have doubled, and Zufa would still have been able to pay its debts. This sickens me. Your thoughts? Well, again, I would have to double check that. I don't want to say that that's true without verifying it. Suffice to say, you guys saw what John Jones said last night, which was we didn't even give a number figure out for wanting more money to fight Francis. What we wanted was just the, you know, we wanted to introduce the idea of getting more. We didn't even get to a figure. And then, you know, you've got Dana White going out there and saying things like, um, he wanted an exorbitant amount as if like they had laid some, you know, napkin down that had the words $1 billion written on it or something like it was a ransom. Uh, guys, it's formulaic. They structure pay and tiered contracts in such a way that they can consistently pay 20% to the fighters year over year, and that 20% includes 1% to 2% being a function of um, what's paid to USADA. They consider that fighter compensation. So really it's around, let's say, 18%-ish, consistent, year over year. It's what it is. Right? And the reason they're able to do that is by not ever changing the pattern of how they do it. I mean, they make, you know, if someone is on a win streak, they'll get a concession here, they'll bump them up a tier, but then they have to sign a new deal. They'll cut certain people... Um, you know, they'll, they'll figure out ways to make it all work, but they operate under the idea. Like imagine they had a salary cap where they had to keep it around 18%, right? That's what they would do. They just find ways to make that math work. And it's more or less 18% year over year. Do you expect to see new wrinkles in Tyron's game? Or are we going to see the same old T wood? I'll say this, you know, I don't think a win over Gilbert Burns gets him a title shot. I do think it sets up a potential fight with Colby. And, you know, listen, at 38 years old, and I think he's one of the best champions UFC's had at welterweight, but obviously we can all agree that probably that his run was not one that the UFC fully embraced. And so if you want to get back to title contention, dude, you got to go in there and you got to, if not new wrinkles, you got to show urgency. Like he has to get out there and just display um, a fire, I think. If he just goes out there and ekes out a five-round win, you know, I can, you and I could respect the value of that. I just don't know promotionally what that does for him. Oh, shit. Hold on. 
What's going to happen when Adam Schefter reports one player test positive while playing in a game? Oh. Well, if they test everybody else and no one has it, nothing. But pandemonium. Pandemonium. Remember, these other leagues have a degree of media pressure that they have to deal with that is significantly greater than what the UFC has to deal with, typically. Do you think we will see a Shevchenko sister fight? Zero chance. Prime GSP, GSP versus current Masvidal. Who wins? GSP. <laughs> Hope you're doing well, Luke. I can't relate to you anymore now that you're so much less miserable than you used to be. Uh, losing my dead job soon and the darkness is real. I'm 25 and no will to live. Well, I'm certainly sorry to hear that, but um, you, you don't... For, you don't you know, Listen, man. Uh, extended misery is overrated and you got to find ways to get yourself out of it if at all possible. Masvidal versus Diaz fight was very one-sided. Do you think Diaz will learn from the first fight and outpaced Masvidal while taking less damage with the first to win a decision? Uh, he could adopt a different strategy, but I tend to think that like, to me there was a big power differential between the two. Like when Diaz lands, I mean, it's not like some sort of pleasant event or something, but it didn't seem to have the same pop that Masvidal did. And so there are probably some adjustments you could make strategically to fight a better fight. I have to go back and watch it again. But in general, I just think that, I mean, Masvidal's got the tactical ability to win and literally he had the physical difference too. It's a hard thing to overcome. Um, how do you personally consume news in an unhealthy way? Um, I have a couple of subscriptions to different places. Uh, more than that, um, I subscribe to, you know, I've started subscribing to uh, people's individual Substack newsletters. I subscribe to uh, David Sirota. Um, I subscribe to Adam Weinstein. I subscribe to Tom Ziller for some basketball stuff. Um, Washington Post, which is my local paper, The Economist. So sort of mainstream stuff. And then I try to read, um, I just read all the, all the time, uh, probably to an unhealthy degree because I, it's, you know, at some point the information just begins to be not processed and emotionally overwhelming when it deals with the bad economy or COVID or something. But, um, generally I just wake up, um, and I sort of read what social media is talking about. Then I'll go to my sources that I typically rely on. And then from there, I'll just sort of try to find interesting stuff that people recommend and, you know, try to get a decently well-rounded approximation of what people are saying. Um, I follow a lot of people who I don't agree with just to see what they're saying about things. I've had my mind changed a lot as a consequence of that. It's often annoying, but I think it's a good thing to do. Um, not Ben Shapiro, because he's not worth following. Um, but, you know, I follow uh, Ben Dominich. I follow Charles Cook, who was having a debate today with Ted Cruz about, um, uh, uh, you know, this new executive order that Trump had signed. Um, you know, a lot, I follow a lot of people that I also agree with, of course. I try to follow as many uh, right-leaning and left-leaning progressive voices to sort of pull me in a different direction. I do a lot of YouTube watching, too. I get more news from YouTube than I used to, which is interesting. I'm not sure how good of an idea that is just yet, but it is happening. Um, 
and then I read on my iPad at the end of the night and usually the middle of the day uh, a book as well. So we've got like the short-term immediate news, you know, try to get different sources and then plow through something that's a lot dense, you know, a lot denser researched, focusing on, on, a, um, on a specific topic. It's sort of like a, so that way you get like current stuff, unusual stuff, diverse stuff, and then you hammer down on a thing that has really been dug into in a very um, processed, long-term kind of way. I usually also use Twitter for news curation. The only problem with that is it just keeps me on Twitter way too much, but it is effective. Um, please check out my interview with a UFC judge on what he thinks takes priority when scoring a fight. Well, there's no such thing as a UFC judge. So if you want to send it to me, you can send me an email. If you want to send me any of your work, you can. Anybody out there, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, but there's no such thing as a UFC judge. Uh, when are you going on JRE? I have not um, had, uh, well, I've had a little bit of contact with Joe, but nothing related to rebooking. I'm basically waiting. Here's what I'm waiting for. Uh, everything is headed in the right direction nationally, right? We can all agree that. Uh, even fucking DC is opening today. Well, phase one opening, right? So you can have 25% capacity and blah, blah, blah. All that shit. You guys know the deal. Um, your state may be much further along. I don't know. But even today, DC is opening for the first time since the initial lockdown. So what I'm waiting for is uh, when safing, uh, safing, when flying is just a little bit safer. I don't know exactly when that will be. I'm hoping that will be late summer, fall. I, I, don't, I don't know, you know. So that's sort of what I'm looking for. Um. Would you consider making a recommended reading list? I've read Tim Wu's works that you've mentioned, and they were incredibly insightful. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. I, I need to do that. I need to do a PED reading list, an academic reading list, and I need to do one for uh, just sort of general worldview stuff. And you guys can take it or leave it. I mean, it's up to you, but but yeah, I, I should do that. I really should do that. I will do that. Um, where's the line drawn between a supplement and a PED? Thanks for your work. So if you look at how, to the extent that supplements are effective... When you look at the totality of what really impacts performance, um, it's the idea that a supplement won't radically alter your performance in short order or um, in a paradigm-altering way. So let me give you an example. If you watch the Lance Armstrong documentary, what they said was that the difference between the first place winner in the Tour de France and then the last place guy was about two hours in total racing time right over the course of 21 days and all those stages right it's, it's it's roughly two hours that means that there's a basically a two percent difference between if you measure what that two hours signifies it signifies a two percent difference between first place and last place and the two hours sounds like a lot but it sounds like it's just two percent and so what they said was that when people were taking epo in like the highest you know drug-induced or drug-riddled uh, moments of cycling, it could boost your own performance by 10%. Well, I mean, do the math on that. 10%, you know, doesn't sound like a lot, right? I mean, you know, I can I can shorten it by from 10 minutes to 9 minutes or something, right? Um, or whatever the, the math on that is. Uh, 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 the, the idea would be that even if it's just a 10% boost, and this is true in, in, uh, this is true in uh, strength sports too. Like if your bench is X and uh, you take PEDs, they've often found it to be, uh, you know, 
it gets better as a consequence. Um, and there's a lot of dip ways to compare that between like natural lifters and um, uh, not non-tested lifters. Like if you look at the deadlift, you know, you'll see that a lot. Uh, you can find natural lifters who can pull 800 or potentially more. Now they can't get to what Thor's doing. That's, that's elite territory beyond elite territory, but you get the idea. Anyway, the point being is this, um, that 10% is enough to cover the 2% and then some. So it's like in that particular instance, it was pass fail. Either you did the drugs or you didn't. And if you didn't, you just didn't have a hope. It was just not possible to win. Uh, in that era, anyway. All right. Uh, all right. Hold on just a second. Yeah, okay. Who wins this fictional fight? Amanda Nunes versus Henry Cejudo. Cejudo. However, Henry must weigh 25. Cejudo. And Henry must wear 10-ounce boxing gloves. <laughs> Maybe Amanda in that sense. Uh, hoped you laughed at the misery comments. Yes, just don't take it, you know. Don't, get, don't be too hard on yourself. Oliveira versus Poirier. I'm going to go Poirier. I don't think he makes the same kind of mistakes that he used to. I think he has much more in-fight discipline, and he's a significantly better boxer. So I'm going to go with him. All right, is there anything else here that I left off? Any good ones? What does TJ Dillashaw's return look like? Boy, ain't that the million-dollar question? That is going to be fascinating to see. You know, because at that point... What are you competing with? You're competing with two years off. You're competing with, in his case, I think he had like double shoulder surgery. Like even if he had never taken time off by virtue of the suspension, just that to me is, again, if you've ever had shoulder surgery and the kind that we're talking about labrum repairs, bro, it, the comeback is not easy. It's not easy. So just that alone captures my imagination, number one. And then the time off is interesting. There's new contenders in the division that fight way different you know than what was there when he was there it's a lot it's going to be really interesting to see how he looks what kind of because remember what he said it was just really a short time I think it was even the one fight he was saying okay well then you know there might be a bit of a early rustish kind of drop off but there should not be over time a significant difference I guess we'll see If you were a fighter, who do you think would mentally break you down before the fight? Colby or McGregor? I mean, it's got to be McGregor, right? I don't think Colby's trash talk. Um, yeah, I mean, McGregor can bring the weight of the world down on you. I think Colby just says the says the taboo stuff, you know. At what point does the crowd start to boo Dana White? I don't know. I wouldn't wait up for it. You know? 
I mean, here's the reality about Dana, and this is why I don't think he'll ever really get booed. He might get booed on occasion here or there if something he gets sideways with somebody in the worst way possible or, you know, gets out in front of his skis or something. But in general, I don't really buy that because, uh, I mean, look, man, what is, what is one truth about fight fans that you couldn't take away from them? And the answer is real fight fans know when they're looking at and talking to another real fight fan. Like, you can't fake that. They can sniff out a phony like that. Right? That's why I sort of Stephen A. Smith doing all the shit that he does, like, whatever you want to make of his comments, it's like, bro, you know he doesn't watch this shit. Like, he watches it for research or for career advancement. And, you know, it, it isn't to say that he's utterly incapable of ever having something interesting to say. It's not the argument. But you just know he's not one of us. Right? You know that. You know that. Um, and, you know, if I tried to cover fucking soccer I don't know how soccer fans feel but I suspect they would you know weed me out too I mean you get the idea right I mean soccer's a, a, a fun thing that I enjoy but I'm not capable of covering it in any kind of educated way and fight fans know other fight fans dude you could say whatever you want bad about Dana you could say whatever you want bad about him and there's plenty of criticisms you can levy his way you could never accuse him of not being a fight fan right and other fight fans see that in him and then you go on to how, you know, forward-facing he is, uh, or, you know, really um, how the company really sort of uh, leans into their fan base and really kind of tries to give back to them and tries to match make along their interests. Not all the time, but a lot, a lot, right? You know, there's a real alignment between UFC consumer and UFC management that's not necessarily in alignment with the fighter. And as that natural alignment always kind of works in Dana's favor. That alignment doesn't really exist in the same way in American football or um, the NBA. The alignment is much more with organization or team or superstar or, you know, something like that. So, uh, so Dana benefits from a natural alignment. Plus, again, you could say whatever else bad about you want about him. You could not, like if someone asks me, is he a real fight fan? You have to say yes. You have to say yes. And I think that authenticity of identity does a lot for him. All right, anything interesting? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I've been watching a lot of Quintet recently due to the lockdown. Out of all the BJJ formats on Fight Pass, it is by far and away the best. Do you think this or any style of BJJ, I think you mean any rule set, has the ability to transcend beyond just the BJJ practitioner community? Um, I watched 90 seconds of the Submission Underground's tag team format. I had to stop because I felt my brain melting. Well, I mean, look, they're just trying to have fun. I don't think there's anything wrong with the tag team format. It just doesn't work for me. Here, here's the problem. I can't answer this question at all because I I didn't hate EBI, but it didn't really do anything for me. And a lot of people like it. So clearly I'm on the, I don't have a keen sense of what people are looking for in that sense. I mean, for me, like there's nothing better than ADCC and there's nothing better than the Moonjials or the Pan Ams or the Nogi Worlds. Like that to me is the very best uh, all the time. It's what I love. So I like, and that has not, that's not spectator friendly. Matter of factly, I get it. 
but it's where you get all the A-class competitors doing A-class shit. You know, and I would rather see that than anything else. So I enjoyed Quintet um, for the most part. Um, I like the team format. You know, it's kind of interesting to mix, you know, fighters versus grapplers and then get some fighters who were high-level grapplers like a Gilbert Burns. Like, that's cool. But in general, I, I don't have a good read on this. Do you think Colby should join a Faraz or a Trevor Whitman? I mean, who could go wrong in either way, but would those guys want him? I, you know, I don't know because he's going to say shit, right? <laughs> Um, ooh, you asked what the two guys shaking hands on MK is called grip to grip that's a good one I'm going to have to steal that do you see Cody Garbrandt being champion again this is the last one I'll do I can't wait for that fight against Asun Sal right at, at uh, UFC 250 UFC 250 the card itself is like fine um, good even but the bantamweight division is going to get some big upheaval, right? So you've got that fight. You've got um, O'Malley versus uh, Wineland. You've got Sterling Sandhagen. I think I'm even leaving out one. Let me just make sure here, and then i got to get going. 250. Um, is there another one? Yeah, Cody Stamen and Brian Kelleher is another one. So lots of movement happening in that division that's gonna be really interesting to see so as it relates to cody man you know this was supposed to be the time when you know he was thinking about doing going to flyweight and blah 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 and like here he is against a sun Sao who's on a two-fight losing streak so he's got his back against the wall but he's 37 he's older cody garbrandt is what how old is cody at this point he is 28 right he's still got plenty of time you know as i mentioned time to start stacking some w's both in the training environment and then in the fight it's themselves and I really want to see what his sojourn out to Mark Henry and everything else that he's done has really done for his development and his, and his fight discipline. Because when he has no fight discipline, you know, he just doesn't fight like himself. But when he fights disciplined and smart and up to his potential, dude, he is nasty. He is very, very talented. He's very talented. I think very highly of Cody's uh, ability when he exercises it. So this will be a big test. That is, I mean, that, and no one's talking about, everyone's kind of, in the, in the fight community, everyone's talking about Sterling Sandhagen with good reason. But that, that, that Cody Garbrandt, Rafael Sunsell fight, look out. All right, y'all. Uh, really appreciate everyone watching. Thumbs up if you liked it. Subscribe, share it around. You know, you know the email, lukethomasnews at gmail.com. Hit me up with any questions you might have or, well, not questions for the chat, but any sort of larger considerations you might have. I appreciate everybody watching. Hope you have a great weekend. I will. I don't know if I'm going to do a show tomorrow night because I don't know how good the traffic will be for a post-fight show for Woodley versus Burns, but we'll see. Um, it will depend on a couple of factors. If not, I'll do something on Sunday either way. And then, of course, morning combat on Monday. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. Until next time, stay frosting.